once again. Thank you all for coming. I was kind of expecting an empty Zenda <laughs> this morning uh, with the weather. Um, so it's uh, great to see so many of you braving the weather to come out here and practice with us today. And we uh, greatly appreciate that. Um, as we always say, this um, place is uh, you know, really made by the people that come here and, and practice, um, make it a living space. Um, so here at Oan, we are a Soto Zen center, but we um, also kind of welcome eclectic ideas and eclectic thoughts about uh, practice, and I think that was shown or seen last week as one of our Sangha members gave a talk about the Tibetan Buddhism practice of Tonglen, and I thought I might extend this uh, even a bit further into other um, schools and other thoughts by talking about the um, Indian classic, the Bhagavad Gita, today. Um, I was teaching it this week for one of my literature courses and revisiting it uh, after about 10 years when the last time I read it was uh, when I studied it with Dr. Deepak Sharma as an undergraduate. And um, it really meant a lot to me, this professor. He uh, really is someone I kind of helped, I think, expand my mind at this age and, and turned me on to thinking uh, about these kind of spiritual ideas. And so I thought it would be, I wanted to include it in my class, doing a, doing a world literature class and just uh, revisiting it and studying it again. Um, I thought I might uh, talk about it today as a Dharma talk because it reminded me of uh, a lot of elements in my own practice and in our practice um, here at Oan and Zen in general. Um, so I thought I would uh, discuss it a little bit. Um, this is not to say I studied it with a great scholar of Hinduism. Uh, I myself am not a great scholar of Hinduism, so um, I have to say, um, I take everything I say with a grain of salt, and I apologize for any inconsistencies since it's a rather uh, difficult text. Um, but I'll do my best to kind of explain at least what it meant for me and what I got out of it and why I think it kind of contributed to my practice uh, in the last couple of weeks revisiting it after so long. Um, so I'm going to begin with a quote um, from Gandhi, which I have to admit I have stolen this idea of starting a lecture about the Bhagavad Gita directly from, with this quote, directly from the great um, Alan Watts. I listened to a lecture of his and he started with this quote. Um, after this quote, our, our discussions will diverge a bit, but I thought this was a nice place to start. Um, a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. He says, I find a solace in the Bhagavad Gita that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount. When disappointment stares me in the face and all alone I see not one ray of light, I go back to the Bhagavad Gita. I find a verse here and a verse there, and immediately begin to smile in the midst of overwhelming tragedies, and my life has been full of external tragedies. And if they have left no visible or indelible scar on me, I owe it all to the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. 
And I believe Alan, Alan Watts started with this for a similar reason that I'll start with it. Um, one, to just show the, the, the impact it had on, on one of the great leaders of uh, last century, one of the great spiritual figures of our figure. But this quote presents a bit of a paradox um, because I will explain what this book is. For those of you who may not know, um, the subtitle of the Bhagavad Gita here in this copy, I, I don't think it's an official title, but the subtitle of this Penguin edition is Krishna's Council in the Time of War. And it's not just Krishna's Council, but it's actually Krishna encouraging someone to go to war and why he must fight this war. So it's a bit of a strange thing to think about, and that's the, the essence of this book. It's a bit of a strange thing, or might seem paradoxical, to think that Mahatma Gandhi, the great proponent of nonviolence, um, found such solace in this book that he could find nowhere else. So I think that's the first thing that I'm going to talk about, how that um, might be possible and how that might make sense. Just to give a little bit more context for the book, the, the Bhagavad Gita is a part of the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, which is I've only read a small summary of because it is one of the longest texts in the world, in the history of the world. It's I don't know, thousands and thousands of pages, I think substantially, substantially longer than, than the Bible. Um, and the, the Bhagavad Gita is just a very small part of it. And the Mahabharata is an epic that kind of, uh, they believe, scholars believe it was composed sometime between 400 BC and 400 AD. And in this 800 year time, it kind of accumulated all sorts of different digressive side um, moments. And the Bhagavad Gita contains what is said as the spiritual essence of the Mahabharata because it's a spiritual epic. It's a epic about spiritual attainment, and it is said that the Bhagavad Gita contains the core of this. And the idea of the Bhagavad Gita, it means the song of the Lord, and the Lord here is Krishna. And there is a charioteer, Arjuna, who is about to go into a war, but this war will be fought against his cousins, and it's a kind of Game of Thrones battle um, trying to reclaim um, the throne of uh, a great king who had passed. And Arjuna is one of um, one of five brothers on the on the let's say on the good guy side. There is somewhat of a clear kind of the rightful heirs to the throne and the, and those um, attempting to usurp the throne. And Arjuna is right about to enter battle, and he looks out over the battlefield, and this battle takes up the majority of the epic. It's this extremely long, detailed, described battle. And right before Arjuna is about to, who is the kind of the greatest warrior of the side, is right about, he's go, he is going into this war. He looks out and he sees that he will be fighting his own family members, his own cousins, um, that there's going to be great destruction no matter what the outcome of this war is, and he loses heart. And he gives a discourse in the kind of the first pages of this where he says, how can I, how can I fight this war? Uh, there, will, there won't be any winners. Um, we're going to be killing our own family. They're going to be killing us. How can I do this? And at this moment, uh, Arjuna's charioteer um, 
turns around and reveals himself to be none other than the Supreme Lord Krishna. Um, and the book is a dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna, mainly Krishna speaking, uh, explaining why it is that uh, Krishna must fight, or that Arjuna must fight this war. Uh, and the, the central principle is that it is because one must do one's duty or one's dharma, uh, one's sacred duty. And just to talk a little bit about what Krishna means in this context, there's different ways of interpreting it. Because one thing I learned from, from my professor is that there's no such thing as Hinduism, which anytime I talk about Hinduism, I have to repeat that because I think he said that to us every class, because Hinduism really began as kind of a collection of religions, uh, some of which didn't really share any ideas with, with other things. Um, so there's all sorts of different versions and ways to approach this text from the many Hinduisms that are out there. But in Hinduism, in a Hinduism, a sort of general version of it, there is um, the, the idea of the absolute or the totality of existence, which is Brahman. And Brahman is not a personal thing at all. It is the absolute. It's the thing that contains all the gods. It is everything um, all at once. Um, it doesn't really have an identity. It has a sound, which is om. If you can hear everything resonating in the universe together at the same time, it will make the sound om, which is the sound of Brahman. And then in speaking for this general version of Hinduism, there's uh, three gods that are three manifestations of Brahman, um, which are Brahma, without an N, Brahma, the creator god, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. Most versions of Hinduism uh, either worship Vishnu primarily or Shiva primarily. I don't know why Brahma gets left out of that. I imagine there's certain... Um, uh, certain denominations or cults or whatever that do worship that. But. And then these aren't corporeal beings. They're still, uh, they're depicted, but these are the ones you typically see that are depicted with many arms, which is pure idealism. The idea is just to show all the things they represent. They don't necessarily, they're not really supposed to have a form. From these three forms, there's all sorts of what are called avatars, which is where the word avatar comes from that we use online, comes from Sanskrit. And the avatars are now actual people that you can see and interact with. And Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu. And this isn't so much like an angel that comes down, or even like Jesus that is God-made flesh. Um, there's, it's just the human version of kind of the same idea as Vishnu, according to, to my understanding, which again is, is not expert and again cannot speak for all of Hinduism because that's impossible according to, to my teacher. Um, so when this book very much is Krishna explaining, he talks about himself as the Supreme Lord, but we have to understand this in this sort of chain that he's also talking about himself as Vishnu and talking about himself as Brahman. Um, but to get into a little bit of what's going on in this text, it opens in this first chapter. The first chapter is sort of Arjuna's doubts. And the second teaching is... Um, a sort of summary of the main tenets of the book. And the, the main ideas here that Krishna sets out is um, you have to fight this battle, as I said, because it's your duty. It is your sacred duty. And it is something that is beyond you. 
and something that um, you cannot back down from just because of your aversion to this war. And this is usually read, I know it was read as such by Gandhi, who said, yes, I know this book's about war, but I'm going to reinterpret it purely as a spiritual um, lesson. And that's how I, I, I see it as well, that this is, um, Arjun, it's really Arjuna's aversions and his attachment to the results of what will happen from this that caused him to back away. And according to Krishna, one must do one's dharma, uh, one's sacred duty, um, without thought of attachment to the results of what will happen. And one can only kind of find the path to one's dharma and figure out what one's dharma is through very similar things that we talk about in Buddhist practice um, that involve a sort of renunciation of the senses. We might not use such a strong word as renunciation in Zen is my understanding. I'm no expert on Zen, I have to admit, as well. But this idea that we can't be pushed and pulled, we have to find a way to... Um, to learn to see through the impermanence of, of our senses and to get to something more constant. And uh, Krishna begins when, when Arjuna says, how, how am I expected to go into this battle? How am I expected to go into this? The book uses a lot of, the Bhagavad Gita uses a lot of this kind of paradoxical, similar paradoxical language that we find in Zen. And... Lord Krishna begins to speak. You grieve for those beyond grief, and you speak words of insight. But learned men do not grieve for the dead or the living. Never have I not existed, nor you, nor these kings. And never in the future shall we cease to exist. When, when these cannot torment a man, when suffering and joy are equal for him, and he has the courage, he is fit for immortality. Nothing of non-being comes to be, nor does being cease to exist. The boundary between these two is seen by men who see reality. Indestructible is the presence that pervades all this. That is, Brahman is the presence that pervades all this. No one can destroy this unchanging reality. Arjuna, when a man knows the self to be indestructible, enduring, unborn, unchanging, how does he kill or cause anyone to kill? Self is used very differently here. I imagine in the Sanskrit, different than we might think of it in, in Zen. Self here, I imagine, is from the Sanskrit Atman, which is the sort of localized version of Brahman. And in reality, we're just confused about the difference between the two. There is no difference. We just think because we have a body and a certain cognition, that our self, our Atman, is different from this absolute, all-pervasive reality. Uh, it's really just we don't understand uh, enough. We haven't attained the right spiritual level to sort of see through that our own personal being is no different than the great being of Brahman. And so Krishna is saying, what are you talking about? Uh, men dying and killing and being killed and destruction and creation if you had the spiritual knowledge, you would see that none of these things exist as you see them to exist. Um, you would just think that your Atman, that your personal self is different from this absolute self and is different from me, Krishna, as sort of representative spirit uh, or person of this, of this greater self. And none of this is really happening. It's, you need 
um, knowledge in order to make sense of this. And so this second chapter where Krishna begins to speak and lays everything out, he really stresses this knowledge. And he continues, which I'll talk about more in just a moment. He says, understanding is defined in terms of philosophy. Now hear it in spiritual discipline. Armed with this understanding, Arjuna, you will escape the bondage of action. No effort in this world is lost or wasted. A fragment of sacred duty of Dharma saves you from great fear. This understanding is unique in its inner core of resolve. Diffuse and pointless are the ways irresolute men understand. And this idea of understanding, we talk in Zen a lot about um, kind of going beyond understanding. And this is, I believe, what the Bhagavad Gita is talking about here, because um, in Sanskrit, the word for understanding, or I've been calling it knowledge as well, is um, buddhi. B-U-D-D-H-I, and it has the same root as Buddha, which is Buddha, which means awakening or knowledge or insight. And this kind of understanding contrasts against what is called uh, manas in Sanskrit, which is the discursive mind. And manas is not really seen as completely negative, but just as I think we talk about the discursive mind here, it has its function. But the problem is when, um, or, or rather... The discursive mind can pull us away from this real awakening, understanding, insight as we're trying to process things and this, this monkey mind that manas can become for us. And the idea here is that, or at least my interpretation of this, is that what, what Krishna is trying to say is that there's a sort of way of being, almost a Tao of the world, uh, uh, we might call it the Buddha nature in our practice that uh, is manifesting. And when we, when we resist this and when we think that our personal self is different from the universal self, when our Atman is different from Brahman, we sort of create a blockage in the flow of the world. And Krishna kind of talks about himself as the preserver and the mediator and everything, every action, which is karma in Sanskrit, every karma flows through him, and you're kind of blocking this if you think um, that you have a self that is different from the universal self. And because of this, you are not doing your duty, and your sacred duty being your dharma, which is to embody this universal self. Um, and, yeah, we talk about um, our... Uh, Buddha nature that we might come into contact with or we, we allow to manifest according to, to my understanding through meditation and through kind of seeing past the impermanence and gaining the knowledge of the three marks of existence we might say uh, in Zen the three marks or in Buddhism the three marks of existence being impermanence, suffering and no self and we're deluded by these things because we can't see them properly. But once we see them properly, we realize that everything that we are doing is actually a manifestation of this. It's just when there's a sort of cognitive um, dissonance almost between the ultimate absolute cognition of Brahman and what we think our own cognition to be. And then in this first chapter, this, this, this first time that, it's the second chapter, but the, the first time that Krishna really speaks, um, 
he lays everything out, and this confuses Arjuna quite a bit. And so he's talking about knowledge, 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 but then he talks about action as well, karma. He says, be intent on action, not on the fruits of action. Avoid attraction to the fruits and attachment to inaction. And I think this is very appropriate. This is one thing that really struck me as a part of my Zen practice and part of what I understand Zen to be. Um, one thing our teacher Medo relates, and I've heard her relate a few times, is that someone asked a, a great Zen master, what is Zen? What is Zen? And the Zen master said, when I walk, I walk. And when I eat, I eat. Being present with what it is that you're doing uh, as the core of our practice. And I think that's what the Bhagavad Gita is essentially saying, um, that uh, to not be attached to the fruits of the action uh, might be called the core of this. Because when we're, when we're doing things for uh, some purpose, um, usually I think the ego gets involved there and is doing it for some purpose. So there's some sort of doing without doing in this very Taoist paradoxical sense of letting yourself be and that actually being the most effective way uh, to engage in the world. And just to continue a little bit, and I'll get kind of back to how this doing without doing might happen and kind of how I've applied it to my practice. Um, but to illustrate this, Krishna lays out pretty much all the terms of this in the second chapter, and this in the third chapter then opens with Arjuna's response of saying, I don't understand any of this, what's going on. And Arjuna says, if you think understanding is more powerful than action, why, Krishna, do you urge me to this horrific act to go into war? You confuse my understanding with a maze of words. Speak one certain truth so I may achieve what is good. So there's a lot of talking about both knowledge, buddhi, and action, karma, in the first. And Arjuna is trying to make sense of how they, they work together. And Krishna responds, No one exists even for an instant without performing action. However unwilling, every being is forced to act by the qualities of nature. So he says there really is no such thing as inaction. Just the very fact of existing, you're, you're acting. And then he goes on to explain perhaps how you can act and not, how you can still act as you and not sort of interfere with your dharma and how to embody your dharma even through acting. When he controls his senses, with his mind engages, with his mind, oh sorry, when he controls his senses with his mind and engages in the discipline of action with his faculties of action, Detachment sets him apart. Perform necessary action. It is more powerful than inaction. Without action, you even fail to sustain your own body. Action imprisons the world unless it is done as sacrifice. Freed from attachment, Arjuna, perform action as sacrifice. When creating living beings and sacrifice, Prajapati, the primordial creator, said, by sacrifice you will procreate. Let it be your wish granting cow. And I wanted to close by talking about this idea of sacrifice. 
because it really kind of made, or at least gave me meaning in the book. I won't say I made sense of this book because I think very much like Zen texts, it's also meant to not be understood and to kind of frustrate rational mind with paradoxes. But what helped me uh, think about this book in terms of my practice was this idea of sacrifice, uh, doing a bit of research into it. It's not um, kind of Judeo-Christian sacrifice, it's sacrifice as penance, of, of sacrifice for atonement for something that you have done wrong. It is rather a surrendering, in my understanding, surrendering all your actions to the greater good. Uh, and understanding what it is that you're doing to the greater good. Um, or rather, it's not necessarily, you won't understand how it happens, but you do understand that this does happen. And this idea of sacrifice is something I found that I can, I have been able to kind of incorporate in my, my daily life, and it will probably fade as the Bhagavad Gita fades and I read other things. But um, thinking about the things I do as my duty and, and also actions that I perform simply because they're there to be done and I perform them um, thinking kind of about the greater good and just a really uh, mundane version of this. And I believe perhaps this is why Gandhi found this book to be so consoling. Um, I, I do my laundry next door. I live downstairs and I do my laundry next door, uh, which means I have to carry a basket out in the cold and... Um, laundry is something I think a lot of us resist doing. And I was, it was quite cold one night and I had, you know, a load of laundry. I'm low on socks and underwear. So I have to, um, you know, I have to do this and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, oh, I really don't want to walk over there. Maybe I can do something else first and maybe I can wake up really early in the morning and do it tomorrow. And then I kind of thought of this book and I thought, um, even at this simple level, even if we're not out fighting this great war, that I think this, this spiritual war is represented precisely in this moment when I'm creating this sort of negative energy by resisting something so obvious um, that is something there's no one else that can do my laundry for me. Perhaps I'm really rich and I could call someone out here to, I'm not, so I can't do that. There's no, there's no way out of doing my laundry. Um, this has to happen um, and it was just kind of a moment of, all right, I can do this without resisting it and do it without creating this sort of letting my ego talk and say, no, you really just want to be comfortable and you just want to relax. And so I've just been trying to kind of go throughout my day and realize how much I resist, you know, perhaps the, my ultimate dharma, I need to study a lot more and find out what my true calling in life is. But where this book just made a lot of sense to me was thinking of, uh, the ways that I might um, just embody the things that I'm doing and just do them um, because I'm the one that has to do it. I have to prepare my class, um, my lecture for class. Um, I have to drive to campus. Um, and just being with whatever it is that you're doing. And I find it very consoling in a way to think that even this actually is part, all part of the spiritual uh, quest, the spiritual path that we're on, um, that we can make even, you know, chopping this onion and it's making me cry, but, you know, this dish requires onion. Um, uh, just being with that and doing it as your life, as the life that you're living and 
um, the tasks that you need to perform on a daily basis, that all these um, form part of the manifestation of dharma, of, of our duty, of our, um, of our movements uh, along a path to some kind of spiritual attainment. And um, eventually, by the way, Arjuna, Krishna talks for a long time and Arjuna realizes what he must do and then goes into battle um, and, and conquers, of course. Um, and I don't know that that'll be the case with my life, but, um, but as Krishna says, um, accomplish, perform actions even without thought of success or fa- failure. Um, that even a failure might be what it is that you simply have to embody and, and do. Um, so that is, um, yeah, I encourage, it's a very interesting read, and it's not long at all. Uh, the verses are very short. You can see on the page, it's really not very much text. Um, but, um, it's something that, that spoke to me in these last weeks, and I thought I would share. Thank you. We only have about one minute left, so I think we can... <laughs>